Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 78, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, by Judy Bloom. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. The blood is released through the vagina. Please, just do this one thing for me. Let me just be normal and regular like everybody else. Just please, 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 please. What I feel, I can't say. I've decided I want you to join my secret club. If you want to be in the club, then you have to wear a bra. Oh. Do you, you think you need one? Are you okay? You can tell me the truth. Ah! Fine, good, yes. We have the Campus Improvement Committee. Any volunteers? Social Committee, Fundraising Committee. <sighs> and how are you? I read that when you don't have any loved ones around, your life expectancy drops drastically, but you know, I've had a good run. <sighs> the time, doesn't it? I don't know if I want to do this. Just that we're ready. Please, God, let it be a lady. Do you think any of us will look like that when we're 19? Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read, of course, and determine whether it is worthy of its reputation and whether it should be considered required reading. So here I am (laughs) bringing another book where we can discuss menstruation. And with me along for the ride, because he's picked up some Tampax along the way, it's my co-pilot, Tom Panarese. Well, I actually have, what are they called, teenage softies? <laughs> teenage softies, yes. Uh, well, how are you? I'm good, okay, how are I'm you? Doing a, yeah, I'm doing fine, you know, besides adulting drama, which I just seem to never get out of. But it was nice to escape into the world of Margaret for a bit, mm-hmm. I have to say. 
and my semester is winding down. So soon I'll be rid of this terrible, terrible class. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. We're supposed to color code. Get this, Tom. Color code a rubric. Nobody does that. To be sure that it aligns with the um, the performance task and the uh, objectives and everything. Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody does that. I mean, I wouldn't think so either. I told someone at uh, the school that I'm working, he's like, who asked you to do that? And I had to explain who it was. But I'm like so checked <sighs> out that I decided not to do it. I didn't do it because yeah. we just had peer review and initial feedback from the professor. But for the p final portfolio, I probably will dig up some energy to actually do it. You're going to put the cover sheet on the TPS reports too? Jeez, I swear. <laughs> yeah, so I wish you were in this course with me. <laughs> you really walked out. You dodged a bullet. Yeah, I'm like, and I have a, the teacher across the hall from me is a first year teacher. And she just, she, she actually student taught at Monticello last year in the English department. And we've had conversations where she's like, you know, there's some stuff that they had us do in grad school that we don't do here. I'm like, no. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I hate rubrics anyway, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. Like even well, after the color coding thing came out, I had a rubric already made, and then mm. that thing happened, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to color code this at all. So I destroyed that rubric and did a new one. But I feel like I still can't do it because there's so much overlap that the colors mm -hmm. would just be brown. So yeah, yeah, I don't even know. Whatever. But any other than that. I think just just trying to make it per usual. Any updates from you? Not really. My life continues to be very very boring. Yeah, that's. I mean, you and I hung out over spring break for a for a nice hike. That was kind of fun. And yes, it was my parent. My parents were in town last weekend. And then yeah, where I'm just it's just uh, barreling toward the end of the school year with uh, the AP exam in two weeks from today or two weeks from tomorrow. And uh, as of this recording, and then, you know, trying to <laughs> funny enough, I have what we're doing now in freshman English followed by our common assessment and writing. After that, I have like two or three weeks where I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I like have an idea, but but um, things that have happened this year caused me to change my mm. schedule around significantly. And uh, so now I'm like, well, I guess I'll just do a bunch of short stories. But I'm like, even I'm like the weather being really, really warm here, like unseasonably warm lately has not helped. It feels like the mid to end of May instead oh, of the mid to end yeah. of April. So it's yeah. just like I'm half mentally checked out. Um, sure. But, I, you know, I'm hanging in there. Well. If you hang in there long enough, you may get your period at the end of your story. This Just like our protagonist, Margaret. But that's a spoiler. <laughs> so, yes, we are doing this, which was funny because I don't know if you said it on air or off air, but you nearly chose this book. In fact, if you hadn't chosen mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet, you would have chosen this book. So I guess like minds. Yeah, um, it it was one that I was always kind of curious about. Um, we'll get into it when our, we have our histories and stuff. And I had seen the trailer for, I, I guess the movie's not out yet. I thought it was uh, already out. But I'd seen the trailer for it, and I was like, oh. And I had briefly thought of it, and then I was like, no, we're going to do Romeo and Juliet. So <laughs> from one teenage work to another. Yeah, there you go. One has a happier ending than the other. Mm-hmm. 
What is your history with this book? Well, so like as far as reading it, it this is the first time I've ever read it. Um, but I have like kind of a my, my history with Judy Bloom herself goes back to when I was like in third grade. So this is that would be 85, 86, almost 40 years ago because uh, I read her books and the works of Beverly Cleary were really the first bona fide novels that I ever read. At some point in either second or third grade, and I want to say it was third grade, our teacher read to us, and then I picked it up and read it myself, uh, Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing. And uh, that was, and I read it like two or three times in school. It was one of my favorite books when I was much younger. And, and then I read Super Fudge, and, which I liked, but I liked Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing more. Um, and those are the only two Judy Bloom books that I read for years and years and years, actually all the way up until this. This is the third one I've read. Um, but I know that um, in talking to and being a, growing up as a late part of Generation X, throughout the 80s and then having you know knowing a lot of people who grew up in the 70s and of course you know being married to a fellow gen xer who is my same age as i am judy bloom's novels resonated with a lot of girls in my generation and a lot of girls and i and i know i'm not trying to be proprietary i would imagine that she still resonates with a lot of girls today as well as um girls and millennials and gen z and, and if we want to put all those labels on it but like there was something very formative about books like Are You There You Are You There God It's Me Margaret and Forever that which is another one of hers that I always heard about these books and I always heard about them in the context of like they were title drop required reading mm-hmm. uh, there was like there's they were like part of the formative reading the coming of age a coming of age story that was coming of age reading to a number of people um, that I knew uh, and. Um, you know, my wife, my wife has vivid memories of reading the book, uh, getting a little scared about um, <laughs> some of the stuff about periods, but really uh, having fond memories of it. So I was that's why I was like, you know what, I should sit down and read this book. And that's why I was uh, pretty enthused when you uh, suggested it. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. I this is the first time I'm reading of it. I think I've just heard the name Judy Bloom for so long but I never read anything by her and there were some people that would equate well there's one person in my life that whenever she talked about Judy Bloom, it was almost with um, moral distaste because um, I know that masturbation is a topic that pops up in, in some of her books and mm-hmm. so I think she thought that this was not a good idea uh, to, to have <laughs> tweens read and in, on the Gilmore Girls Lorelai Gilmore mentions that she was reading Deanie, I think, like on the cusp of like when she went into labor, basically, okay. um, to, to show like this is because she was 16. So to show that, you know, this was her. And so that was something that I had wanted to read because it was mentioned on Gilmore Girls and my mom got it for me either for a Christmas gift or a birthday gift and i think Mm. that one does also have masturbation in it so that was the only judy bloom that i had read and then this one are there god it's me margaret i i had heard so much about i wondered what it was so my first experience with it but judy bloom i think is a well-known person in literature circles and i'm wondering if this will be true 
with the coming generations? Like if you were mm. to talk to a student, one of your students, would they know who Judy Bloom was? I don't know. I mean, some of them might. Want to try that tomorrow? Yeah, um, I might. I might mention it. Um, I mentioned the book in class today because uh, there was a. Uh, I was reviewing AP uh, prompts for uh, free response question three in the AP lit prompt. It's an open question, so you can use whatever literature you want. And there was a question about the um, oh, what the heck is the term's actually in here. It's that German word for a coming of age novel. Um, yeah, Bildungsroman. Bildungsroman, yes. Schnell. That's exactly. Oh my gosh, are you okay? Your family's going to come down and resuscitate you. So I mentioned. I was just kind of rattling off titles that I remember. And I said, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. I said, in fact, I just read the book, but I don't think any registered with any of them. So I don't know how many of them have read them or really know that much about her. Uh, but we can get into that a little bit. Um, and we can get into some of the, the censoring and some of the uh, acute accusations of lewdness that her books have gotten to. So, yeah, absolutely. Because, um, yeah, boys in my generation learned about masturbation for much, from much more racy sources than a Bloom mm-hmm. novel. You know, so, yeah. bad. Okay. So let us look at the biography of Judy Bloom. So I am on biography.com. She was born Judith Sussman on February 12, 1938 in Elizabeth, New Jersey, the second child of Esther, a homemaker, and Rudolph, a dentist. She was given the chance to expand her creative energies through an array of activities that included piano and dance lessons, and she especially enjoyed reading and constantly made up stories in her head. After attending the all-girls Batten High School, Bloom was forced to leave Boston University after just two weeks upon contracting mononucleosis. She resumed her education at New York University, during which time she met lawyer John Bloom. They were married shortly after the death of her father in 1959, and she graduated with a B.S. in education in 1961. Wow, that was a Bachelor's of Science originally. I feel like that's now like a B.A. Having given birth to two children, daughter Randy and son Lawrence by 25, Bloom sought to satisfy her creative urges by taking a writing course at NYU. Following years of rejection, she became a first-time author when her illustrated children's book, The One in the Middle, is the Green Kangaroo, was published in 1969. Bloom followed with her first novel, Iggy's House, in 1970, about an African-American family that moves into a white neighborhood. Oh, we should look at that and see what sort of, that's like Raisin in the Sun-ish, if there's any any sort of redlining what's going on in there it was bloom's following book are you there guys me margaret in 1970 that firmly established her as a leading voice for young readers focusing on a girl who wonders about the pending arrival of her period and her parents competing faiths bloom definitely tapped into her experiences from pre-adolescence to deliver an endearing honest coming-of-age story her subsequent books deanie in 1973 and forever dot 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 1975 touched on the similarly sensitive but universal issues of body image and teenage sexuality. Other works such as Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing in 72, Blubber in 74, and starring Sally J. Friedman as herself in 77, while geared toward younger readers, nonetheless stood out for stark portrayals of family strife and childhood angst. By 1975, Bloom had grown bored with her suburban life and divorced her husband. She met physicist Thomas Kitchens and quickly remarried, but by the end of the decade, she was divorced again. Such experiences fueled the creation of more mature material, and in 1978, she published 
wifey about a repressed housewife. Bloom added another adult novel with Smart Women in 83, but she mainly continued writing for younger audiences. She revisited her Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing characters with the 1980 sequel Superfudge and mined the painful memory of losing her father for Tiger Eyes in 81. Later, Young Adult Fair included Just As Long As We're Together in 87, and its 1993 follow-up Here's to You, Rachel Robinson. Censorship! Despite the overwhelming popularity of her stories, Bloom found herself a target for censors who sought to have her sensitive material removed from bookshelves. Five of her works, Forever, dot dot dot, Blubber, Are You There God, Deanie, and Tiger Eyes, Are You There God, Tiger Eyes, made the American Library Association's list of the 100 most frequently challenged books from the decade of 1990 to 99. Listen, I understand why Deanie might be challenged, but Are You There God? I don't understand. Uh, it's, as a it's result, the period thing. The, that's the, the only reason yeah, they're challenging it. I would imagine. I mean, that's there's ridiculous. the Frank, but you know, uh, it's, it's that whole idea of like you know you're 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 exposing girls to talk about menstruation at an age that's too young or something. It it makes no sense to me. It makes absolutely no sense to me. But I think that's part of it, and and probably some of the things about like you know breasts and you know. That's the sort of yeah. sort of thing. There's no real sexuality in this book, but there's that sort of burgeoning discovery of oneself. And, yeah. you know, that's dangerous because they might want to go have the sex. I see. It'll be I unclean. <sighs> As a result, Bloom joined the National Coalition Against Censorship to speak out in favor of intellectual freedom. She also edited the 1999 book Places I Never Meant to Be, a collection of short stories by authors who had also felt pressure from censors. Bloom teamed up with her son Lawrence. This is under recent works and accolades. Her her son Lawrence, a filmmaker, to write and produce the screen version of Tiger Eyes, released in 2012. It was the first major adaptation of her books. In the spring of 2015, Bloom published her first novel in 17 years, In the Unlikely Event, based on an unusual period from her childhood when three planes crashed in her hometown over the span of two months. The book explores how such tragic events can affect families for generations. The famed author has sold more than 85 million books. Her words translate into nearly three dozen languages. Among her lengthy list of accolades, she was honored by American Library Association with the Margaret A. Edwards Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1996 and the Library of Congress with its Living Legends Award in 2000. And then I wanted to look at the actual Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And this comes from Judy Bloom's own site. We'll talk about this story, so I just wanted to say what Judy says about this. So Judy says, For the first time since I'd started writing, I let go and this story came pouring out. I felt as if I'd always known Margaret. When I was in sixth grade, I longed to develop physically like my classmates. I tried doing exercises, resorted to stuffing my bra, and lied about getting my period. And like Margaret, I had a very personal relationship with God that had little to do with organized religion. God was my friend and confidant, but Margaret's family is very different from mine, and her story grew from my imagination. Margaret brought me my first and most loyal readers i love her for that when i finished writing i had no idea of her title so i took the first line in the book if i'd known then how often i was going to have to say the title i might just have called it margaret <laughs> and then the dedication was to her mother who was a reader she bought me the betsy tacy series which were my favorite books when i was young a few years later she handed me to kill a mockingbird and anne frank's diary of a young girl two books i've never forgotten the film is coming out 
Oh, release date April 28th to 2023. And the cast, Abby Ryder Fortson as Margaret, Rachel McAdams as Barbara, L. Graham at I don't oh, this is interesting. L. Graham as Nancy Wheeler, Kathy Bates as Sylvia Simon, Benny Safide as Herb Simon. They had, uh, you know, they had to get a Jewish looking man. Um, <laughs> Esol Young as Laura Danker, which of course we'll talk about. So pretty good cat. I don't think I saw the father yeah. at all in that trailer. Mm. I just keep seeing Rachel and uh, Margaret, which I thought that this story like was a single parent or there was going to be a divorce and there wasn't just because I had seen that trailer. I love Rachel McAdams. Such a crush on Rachel McAdams. Uh, Whoa. Oh, she man. had your little card there? I, I think so. I can't remember. <laughs> but not from Mean Girls, though. Oh. Like, I should love her in Mean Girls, but she, but the, the, the movie that made me like really like her was uh, the Sarah Jessica Parker movie called The Family Stone, where she kind of plays the um, quirky, like, rebelish sister to uh, – whoever Sarah Jessica Parker's fiance is. And I can't remember who plays in the movie, like Durham or Rooney or somebody. Um, but yeah, she's just like, yeah. And she's my age. So it's, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Banks, I believe directed the movie. Oh, interesting. She's so. directed or produced it, but she's, she's also uh, one of the people in charge of it. Well, so. cause she just got off of cocaine bear. <laughs> yes. So she's really riding a high, isn't she? Well, yeah. Cause cocaine bear high, <laughs> I see the pun. Yeah. Yeah. Produced by, I, you might be wrong. I think. You oh, okay. Why did I think Elizabeth Banks was? Yeah. Cause it says written for the screen and directed by Kelly Freeman Craig. And oh, produced by James L. Brooks. Oh, that's my bad. And then I was, I was mistaken. Why did I think she was attached to this? I don't know. That's why even if you're really good friends, people always check what they're saying, especially if they're a man. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. But okay. I, I'm, I'm very willy, willing to, um, to concede. Admit my faults. <laughs> yes, sir. As you know. Okay, and then the final thing, looking at historic context, which I got this from Witch Charts. So this book deals primarily, of course, with two subjects, the role of religion in mid-20th century America and puberty. Following World War II, families flocked to the suburbs, as Margaret's does, and many families became regular churchgoers. While mainstream Protestantism represented a large percentage of churchgoers during the post-war years, and the dominant religious voice in the country, other religions were also becoming more mainstream. For instance, instance, the election of John F. Kennedy as president in 1960 represented a boost for many American Catholics, and in the 1970s, religions considered quote-unquote alternative, like Hinduism, were becoming more popular. This helps explain why Margaret feels such pressure to choose a religion once she moves to the suburbs. Her parents, as people who don't identify as any one religion or attend religious services at all, would have been outliers. Schools first began teaching sex ed in the early 20th century, but it wasn't until World War II that the practice became widespread and seen as a social good. Soldiers were regularly shown films warning of venereal disease and advising condom use. By 19... Where are they going to get condoms, you know, in the front lines? By 1970, it was common for companies that produced period products, like the fictional Private Lady Company in the novel, to produce educational films explaining puberty and menstruation, which, as Margaret is annoyed to discover in the novel, was one way for those companies to advertise their products. Regarding the use of condoms in the military. Yes. That goes does go back to like the Second World War. Uh, at least the VD thing, um, there was a cartoon that Disney produced about 
what they then called VD or venereal diseased uh, to soldiers and, and the idea. So they were, I mean, you know, condoms have been around for a very long time. And so I would imagine that they were just part of the soldier's kit or something oh. um, because there was a lot of warning. Well, there was a lot of warning about like, you know, be careful when you're on shore leave and things. And it, it ranged from women, women in, in the occupied territory might be spies. So be careful, you know, who you sleep around with oh, and or women and women in those territories might have vd so be careful who you sleep around with so yeah i think i think it was they were they were made available where uh where possible wow and did you realize when you were reading this that this novel is in continuity with stranger things no i know that um her father's parents are from her father's no her mother's parents were from indiana originally was but tom what <laughs> Her neighbor is Nancy Wheeler. Oh, jeez. <laughs> this is nice. Nancy. Yes, it's her origin story. It's Nancy Before Wheeler. Barb got killed. Anyways. Very nice. I kept Very thinking nice. about that when her name was Nancy Wheeler. Uh, any other thoughts before I give the plot synopsis? No, although I just I, I, I read the uh, the historical context aspects about following world war ii families flocked to the suburbs and that is basically the story of my parents who you know my parent my dad's family left brooklyn for uh nassau county long island in the late 1940s early 1950s is some of the first suburbs there uh they were roman catholic though so they were not protestant but that's because i grew up in new york and the predominant christian denomination in New York and on Long Island, at least the New York metro area is Roman Catholic. So that's not a shock. To, it's not a shock to anybody, but, but yeah, so just kind of, I recognize some of the historical nature of, you know, what you were talking about in just this last section. So it's, okay. it's kind of my wheelhouse too. It's like a part of history. I love to explore. Very cool. Okay. So now I'm going to tell you all about, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. And this plot synopsis comes from lit charts. Cause remember I'm lazy and the Latinist was just, it was just a, a blip that I had to make my own synopsis. Okay. It was a shock for 11-year-old Margaret when she got home from summer camp to discover that mom and dad rented out their New York City apartment and bought a house in Farbrook, New Jersey. Margaret figures this is because her parents think Margaret's grandma, who lives in the city, has too much influence over Margaret. We'll talk about it. Hours after moving in, a girl named Nancy invites Margaret to play in the sprinklers. Oh, I remember playing in the sprinklers. She watches Margaret change. That was weird. She watches Margaret change into a swimsuit and remarks that Margaret's chest is still flat. The girl's fun in the sprinkler comes to an end when Nancy's older brother Evan and his friend Moose, thank you, not me though, turn the sprinkler on full blast. As Nancy walks Margaret home, she invites her to join her secret club and tells Margaret not to wear socks on the first day of school. If she does, everyone will think she's a baby. That night, Margaret asks God to help her grow breasts. Her parents don't know she talks to God, so she only does so privately. On the first day of school, Margaret and Nancy learn they have a first-year teacher, Mr. Benedict. 
After school, Margaret goes to Nancy's first secret club meeting. She meets the other two girls, Gretchen Potter and Janie Loomis. <gasps> Do you think she's related to Dr. Loomis from Halloween? They decide they all have well, to wear bras. Halloween does take place in New Jersey. Oh my goodness. This is ter- where so many connections. They decide they all have to wear bras, keep a boy book, a ranked list of boys they like, and share immediately if they start their period. Nancy also tells Margaret about Laura Denkin, their classmate who is physically very mature. According to Nancy, Laura regularly lets Moose and Evan touch her behind the A&P, I think. Margaret tells her friends about how her mom's parents disowned her mom when she married a Jewish man, Margaret's dad. This is why her parents are raising her without religion. She can choose a religion for herself when she gets older if she wants. Nancy is aghast since everyone in Farbrook either joins the Y or the Jewish Community Center, depending on their religious affiliation. Over the weekend, both Janie and Margaret buy their first bras. On Monday, Mr. Benedict assigns a year-long personal project. Students can study whatever they want, however they want. At the secret club meeting, the girls decide the project is silly. They check each other's bras, perform an exercise to help them grow breasts, and Nancy looks through the boy books. Except for Margaret, who put Jay Hassler first. They all put Philip Leroy first. Margaret actually has a crush on Moose, but she's not going to admit it because Nancy hates him. Margaret decides to do a project for Mr. Benedict on religion. She'll study different religions and decide what she is at the end of the year. She asks Grandma if she can accompany her to Temple, and Grandma is ecstatic. They go for Rosh Hashanah. Margaret loves the music, but she doesn't understand much of the service, especially the bits in Hebrew. She doesn't feel God while she's in the temple either, but she continues to talk to him at night. As fall turns to winter, Margaret accompanies Janie to church, which seems the same as temple, except that the service is all in English, and the PTA puts on a square dance for the sixth graders. Margaret is excited to dance with Philip until she discovers that, like most of the boys, he steps on the girl's feet. In December, Margaret and her friends look through an anatomy book, and one of Margaret's <laughs> uh, and one of Margaret's dad's Playboy magazines. I forgot. I wanted to ask the question about that. Uh, they think naked men look weird, and Nancy in particular wants to look like the women in Playboy. Margaret also discovers that Mom sent a Christmas card to her estranged parents. Just after winter break starts, Margaret gets an invitation to a party at Norman Fishbean's house. Margaret spends the day of the party preparing for a big night. She stuffs her bra with six cotton balls and asks God to help her grow breasts. At the party, the kids play spin the bottle and two minutes in the closet. Margaret kisses Philip and Norman during the games, and she thinks Laura seems oddly nervous for being so promiscuous. Over the break, Margaret also goes with Nancy's family to their Christmas Eve church service. Margaret loves music, but she doesn't feel closer to God in the church. In January, Grandma heads to Florida, and Margaret and her female classmates see a movie in school on menstruation. Margaret already knows everything, and she resents that the movie is basically an advertisement for Secret Lady brand period products. Yeah, which, there's a funny moment because somebody asked, I don't know if it was Margaret, but they like asked about tampons, and the representative was like, you shouldn't until you're much, much older, which probably means that Secret Lady brand products doesn't make tampons, so they wanted you to be sure to have the pads. Mom shares that she didn't start her period until she was 14. Margaret is terrified that she won't start her period and won't be normal. She's even more distraught when, a few weeks later, Nancy reveals that she started her period. Margaret begs God to help her be normal. In March, Grandma invites Margaret to visit her in Florida over spring break, and Margaret accompanies Nancy's family and Moose on a day trip to New York City. 
Margaret is thrilled to be out with Moose, but it's a shock when Nancy starts her period, and Mrs. Wheeler reveals that it's Nancy's first period. Apparently, she had lied before. It's Margaret's 12th birthday a week later. Mom agrees to buy Margaret deodorant to mark the occasion. The day seems to be going well until Mr. Benedict announces a group project and reveals that he already chose students' groups. Margaret will be working with Laura, Philip, and Norman. She's in a bad mood for the entire three weeks of the project. Things come to, because we all know about group projects, things come to a head one afternoon when Margaret and Laura work after school in the library. Laura is planning to go to confession after she's done. Margaret is so busy wondering if Laura tells a priest about all her sexual exploits that she copies verbatim out of the encyclopedia. When Laura calls her out on this, because Laura is actually doing a good job in the group project, Margaret insults her for being promiscuous. Laura leaves the library angry and upset. She asks Margaret to consider how horrible it is to be picked on for being the most developed kid in class, and she implies that there's no truth to Margaret's accusations. Feeling awful, Margaret decides she'd better confess too, but she doesn't know how, and she leaves the church in tears. She also realizes Moose might be lying about Laura to make him look better. A week before Margaret is set to visit Grandma in Florida, Mom gets a letter from her parents, Margaret's grandmother and grandfather. They're coming to visit over spring break, so Margaret can't go to Florida now. Margaret is incensed. God must be punishing her for being mean to Laura. The visit is awful. When grandmother and grandfather try to insist that Margaret is a Christian and should go to church, mom and dad insist that Margaret can choose. To escape her grandparents, Margaret goes with Janie to the movies the next day. They decide to buy pads at a drugstore just in case either of them starts their period. When Margaret gets home, grandmother and grandfather announce that they're leaving early though maybe it was already planned who knows once they're gone margaret practices wearing a pad that night grandma and her new boyfriend mr benjamin like the the good grandma not the grandmother show up on the doorstep all the way from florida grandma explains that she came hoping to tell mom's parents that margaret is jewish margaret snaps she insists she doesn't believe in god she and god aren't even speaking anymore to finish her project for Mr. Benedict, Margaret writes him a letter detailing her experiences at church, temple, and confession. She admits that she doesn't know what religion she is or if she wants to choose, but she does know that if she has kids, she's going to tell them what religion they are. Trying to figure it out later in life is too hard. School lets out in June. Hearing Moose mowing the lawn outside, Margaret decides to confront him about telling lies about Laura. But as Margaret confronts him, she realizes Nancy probably started the lies about Laura. This makes Margaret feel better about her crush on Moose. She goes to the bathroom and discovers <gasps> she started her period. Margaret thanks God for helping her. The end. Well, Tom, first things first. Out of five periods, what would you give this? No, did you like this <clears throat> book? I did. Um, okay. It, it took it took a little bit for me to get into okay. the headspace of the fact that this was meant for a like elementary school level reader, probably like fourth, fifth grade, maybe. Like you know, it's a young reader's book. Uh, so once I got there, because you kind of have to adapt to the, um, the the writing style, right? You know, um, it's. Yeah. And, and the voice. And once I got there, I was like, yeah, this is really – parts of it I found were interesting and a little quaint. But um, when we could discuss that, it was, we're call, talking about its relevance and all that. But no, I, I actually genuinely in, enjoyed it and I thought it was – I thought – you know, I thought a lot of this was compelling, uh, especially a lot of the questions she is asking 
about religion and maturity and a lot of the things that she has to figure out on her own and how many wrong roads she goes down even though everything is fairly innocent but i think that's a really good reflection of of you know most most kids in the suburbs you know and um just before i before i, I stop talking it's also i totally recognize how groundbreaking this novel is because i'm trying to think of prior to 19 this is 1970 prior to 1970 young adult literature is like i think the outsiders is probably the most prominent like what we call contemporary young adult literature uh novel i think the outside it kind of starts with the outsiders which is the mid 60s or so and prior to this you know you got a lot of like you know boy adventure stories and i guess there's you know there's very um it's very very much what you would have expected between boys and girls and gender roles in the 50s and uh this is something that is very frank in in ways and is very much attempting to tell a real story about real girls and Mm -hmm. in an era that is becoming increasingly honest about about girls and sexuality and their bodies and and all of those things so um in reading it i'm like i can not only see like why it has the reputation for my among my generation that it does and totally see that it deserves all the praise it gets so yeah i really enjoyed this i'm glad to hear it i would agree that you know I may have taken a little bit to get into it uh, I was surprised I guess how well Bloom writes like a burgeoning 12 year old yeah which which yeah so depending on your mileage with that you know if you are not one who's going to be able to be in that voice or appreciate that voice it might be a bit more difficult but i feel like it really helped you empathize with that character and like really like it pulls you in because it's just so believable it's i i couldn't i wasn't out of it at all thinking that oh this is clear clearly an adult attempting to be yeah a 12 year old is like this really feels like a 12 year old is writing her um what's going on day to day throughout the year. So I also enjoyed it. And, you know, we've talked about periods very so often in the past couple years for whatever reason. And it's not like I'm forcing the issue. It's just like coming up. But we know that it happens so infrequently that I think it's praiseworthy when we discover any form of media that does discuss it in a way that there's no stigma to it. And all of the girls are like very positive about like, it's something to look forward to. Yeah. And then who knows years later, what Margaret (laughs) has to say about it now? Like, Oh, here we go again. Who who the hell looks forward to this? Yeah, I know. Well, in the beginning, I guess. Yeah. In certain contexts, you might be looking forward to your period, but not in Margaret's age. But yeah. Yeah. So, and just, being a girl at, at that age, I think, mm. is uh, it's hard sometimes. And so to see her navigate through that, I think it's like a really authentic story. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I also liked it. Yeah. Um, to Bloom, Bloom was talking about the movie in an interview or in a tweet or something. She said they, they have set the movie, I believe, in the 70s, uh, which okay. she says does kind of help keep the story like, you know, because it's been so long. But I do know that um, – because basically when I mentioned my wife to my wife, we were doing this book, it has been 
edited slightly over the years as far as the menstrual products because back in 1970 they still had the 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 period belt it was it was like a, a menstrual belt or something where it was like you know the pad was attached to this it was almost like wearing a jock strap or something and those went out of fashion because they were no longer necessary by like the 80s but I, I don't know if the book was updated prior to when we when people my age started reading in the 80s. So you read about this belt you had to put on and um, and then eventually you found out, oh, no, tampons and stuff like that. So I think some of it was edited to just be a little bit more in line with what you would okay. have to buy for your period with a more modern audience so that it so that a girl reading this in my edition was published, I think in 2009, wasn't confused. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, speaking of that, that transitions well into the, the first question, mm. but just why is this novel relevant, still relevant more than 40 years after it was first written? What, what makes it so enduring? I, I think you were saying, like you were saying, she gets the voice down so well, it doesn't come off as a adult trying to write a kid. And she has, like, characters who are very, very much like kids, behaving like kids do, especially at those ages of 11 and 12, where you are stuck. There's a reason that nowadays, since, like, the 90s, they refer to these ages as tween. Um, that term didn't exist back in 1970. Because you are really stuck between this very adult-seeming world of teenagerdom. You know, when you're that age, like the high school kids are like mm -hmm. really old, you know, you're just like, wow. Right. And um, especially if you have like an older sibling or an older cousin or something, I had older cousins. So and but then like the kids below you, like my sister, who's three years younger than me, they're not babies, but they're little kids. So, but you're but you are still very much a little kid, but you're kind of play pretending and some of these girls are play pretending to be more adult than they are in a very innocent way you know and but they're they're all starting to do the things that that girls are notorious to doing to one another when they're in like the rumors and the and and the kind of posturing to make it seem like you know they've you know protecting their ego or self-esteem or whatever saying oh yeah i got mine and lying about that those sorts of things getting your period and stuff and i think that it's relatable in that regard. Yeah, parts of it are a little bit dated, um, you know. And you can you can up you could probably you, know, you could always update it to the times with technology and and stuff like that. But I think that the attitude, you know, I, I just maybe it's naive of me. I think that kids these days have not changed as much as people think they have, and I think they still act this way, and the way. And I think that people can see themselves in this, and I think that's why it's still relevant. Yeah, the language, as you say, I, I, I don't really want to repeat you, but and it's it's really just that the, it's not like periods have gone away. Yeah. Unless, you know, we get to a, a point in time where the carcinogens have really worn down our DNA and we no longer are able to do so. Who knows? I'm sure it's possible. But, yeah, no, it's something that every girl is going to go through, I think, even with social media, which, of course, is, is a question that we'll also talk about relationships and how girls relate to each other and how girls relate to young men and this interesting time period in middle school like it's generally the same so I think anyone can go there and mm -hmm. while it might not be someone's 
you know, apple to apple story, I think there are definitely pieces that anyone can pull out and be like, yeah, I went through that sort of thing. So, and even if you're the Laura Dankins of the, of the group, you know, and, and be like, yeah, this is stuff that I've gone through as well. So, yeah, I, I think that even, there's nothing really that dates it besides what you said about the feminine products mm-hmm. and maybe that band. Is that band a real band? You're the only person that would know in my life. What's the name of the band? It was Mice something. I, I don't think so. I'm not I sure. Know, she, she was really, in, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. She got it for her birthday, I think. Mice Men. Um, I don't think so. Okay. So, yeah, there's nothing, I think, to to date it. Yeah. Splitting up the classes for talks about reproduction, like that still happens to a certain extent, depending on your school. Yeah, I can't really, can't really think, you know, old, older uh, grandparents going to Florida, that definitely still happens for winter. Yeah, so it's, it seems like it's a very timeless topic and, and book for sure. Uh, what aspects, here we are, what aspects of this novel, Are You There, God, show that it is a Bildungsroman or coming-of-age novel? I, um, <laughs> it, well, I, just the, the obvious things we've already been talking about, the fact that you are, you have an 11-year-old girl going on 12, right? And um, you have her taking the first toes dipping in the water and steps toward adulthood, uh, and there are specific moments that you can think of that are very much that as as from the very, very real, you know, some of those moments, the, the moment with um, Laura and the whole rumor and everything is uh, that's very much teenage behavior. Right. And and there's, you know, and, and it's 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 a very real lesson, you know, to learn um, about like kind of the deceit of all that. It's, there's a, there's a lack of innocence there, a loss of innocence there. Uh, you have, of course, you know, getting your period and you have, but you also have discovering like the boy book, wanting a woman's body as opposed to a girl's body. Right. So mm-hmm. we must, we must, we must increase our bust, right. you know, and things like that. So there, there a lot of that as you're coming of age, but also like the questioning of, you know, your, your spirituality, your religion, which is, which is interesting or kind of ironic in a way, because very often when you think about coming of age and you think about your teenage years, you are very often rebelling against your parents. So sometimes you start questioning your religion because you've been raised in a religion, right? And this is actually the opposite because she wasn't raised with it. So she's trying to discover it. But so that aspect of it is also coming of age. It's, it's forming your own identity apart from mm-hmm. what your parents have set for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know that the ultimate buildings Roman is Jane Eyre. So if I think about, you know, what, <laughs> what, what Jane went through compared to Margaret, <sighs> Margaret, she has a bit of an easier time of it. Mm-hmm. But no, I think Margaret finds her, she's starting to find her own identity because she is, even though we are in her mind and she thinks things differently than what she says out loud, I think by the end of the novel, what she thinks and what she says out loud are starting to align. 
because she very much just goes along with the flow with with these other girls yeah. and part of that is potentially because of being the new girl mm-hmm. not wanting to rock the boat it, also just her personality but then i think it's such a great moment where she goes out there and accosts moose even though it wasn't him yeah, she figures out it was probably Nancy. <laughs> it was probably Nancy, yeah. That, yeah, she kind of realizes how, and I guess really it starts from the Laura Dinkin episode in the library. She like she realizes she messed up. She was listening to all these people and going along with everything. And then I think she becomes kind of her own person in that particular moment. I'm hopeful that the future Margaret maybe isn't friends with Nancy or if that's too extreme, that perhaps Nancy grows a bit as well because, yeah, you know, she lying about that. If she lied about the A&P situation or if she got it from her brother, I don't know. And then, of course, the, the period. I don't know if Nancy's the best person to uh, follow around. So, yeah. I think that would be my greatest yeah. thing for the coming of age is like coming of age for me is also like coming into your just like Jane, right? The thing that I love about Jane Eyre is that she does have her own mind and 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 goes her own path, even though it, and like her belief system and all of that. And so I think Margaret gets to that point or is on the, mm-hmm. the beginning journey of that becoming her own yeah. person, which is great because she's going to be in a more hostile environment once they are in junior high, as they say. So seventh grade. I went to junior high school. So. Congratulations. I did. No, no. Was, <laughs> you survived. That's thing. No, it's another thing. Oh, God. It's the worst two years of my life. That was another thing where it's like some of my students might understand, and I've explained to them before uh, when they've asked, when I mentioned junior high, they're like, what's junior high? And I explained that junior high was seven, eight, nine, and elementary was K through six. And they were like, really? I was like, yeah. So... Um, were you ever the new kid around this age? Cause I never was. My parents bought their house before I was born. They're still living in it. Oh, okay. I, yeah, my parents moved us from Buffalo and I had one month of school to go. And the reason why they did that is because, uh, I was in fifth grade at the time. And so they wanted me to like form some connections before I went into middle school. So Yes. So Margaret, so fifth grade end of the yes, yeah, so me yes. So does her her wanting to fit in and and the the aspects of her being the new kid does that ring true for you? Uh, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I mean, being yeah, being a new kid is hard, no matter what. And then I think, but. I feel like when you're a new kid and you're a child, you know, in elementary school, Mm. especially like the lower grades, you don't even know what's going on. You're just like fighting for your life down there. Mm -hmm. Um, But when it's middle school, you like have a social idea already of like, I need to make my way here, figure out, you know, the clicks, that sort of thing, make connections. So, yeah, definitely for sure. Oh, sorry, I forgot I was leading. <laughs> I was leading sorry, I, I asked you, I threw you a question. No, that's okay. So. I was, I thought you were leading this for a moment. Okay, so now we're we're moving into religion. We're just going to be speeding along here. How I do, I do have a question about some. I think I forgot about some um, loose ends that are not tied up, but we can connect that maybe with Laura Danker. Yes, um, because I also wonder about the project mm-hmm. that she turned in why we'd never really get back to that and 
I also do wonder about the Playboy. Well, I'll just ask that right now, uh, <laughs> since you're a man. But do you think I get, is that normal? Is that normal that it would be out? Because she said that they were normally in a a magazine rack, but then she had to go and search it out. Is that normal that they would be in a display area? No. Okay. But I mean, I don't know. In 1970, I have no idea. Uh, in 19, I was 12 in 1989. Um, in 1989, no, that they would be in a drawer, you know, okay. in the closet. That was one of those things that um, this this rang true for me because some of the ways that you discover things about sex, unfortunately for a lot of us became pornography when we were younger now or, or steamy sex scenes in movies, mm-hmm. right? Like new, cause the eighties movies have uh, enough nudity that you, and you were, we were able to, we somehow got away with renting R rated movies at uh, the video store, but like somebody, uh, somebody's friend, so from the 80s and the early 90s, somebody, a friend of mine, like there was never any in my house. I mean, the most pornographic thing I probably ever owned was like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, which and that is kind of was kind of a formative thing for a lot of our gen- my generation. Naked, naked breasts outside of like National Geographic would be something like a Playboy or or possibly a penthouse magazine some guys parents had it usually it was like an older brother and they were always like hidden under a bed or under a mattress or something you know there was it was a lot more uh contraband by the time i was in the uh by the time i was around this age and uh we would go from the magazines to Somebody had an illegal cable box and, you know, sneak the dirty channels and things like that. But the fact that it was out was a little odd. The fact that she knew he had them to me was not because I figured Margaret either either her parents are very open about these things because they do seem a little bit hippie in some regards or she snuck around the house and she found them at one point, (laughs) which kids do. Right. Yeah. So, but the, uh, but people would know what Playboy is. So, I mean, so the idea that like somebody had access to something like this is realistic. Gotcha. Okay. So we've done menstruation, we've done porn, we've done masturbation. What else are we doing this episode? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) No, that is interesting. I just, if it were actually in the, in the rack, as she said, I just thought, and also... Do wives really appreciate that their husbands have a subscription? To I wouldn't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure off the um, off okay. the top of it my head. Seems, yeah, seems a bit odd. Um, and then I, the medical book came from, I think Laney's father. Maybe it was uh, a Gretchen. Oh, Gretchen's yeah. father, and in fact, I actually have the. Page. I'm up to the page here. Which there was, yeah. It's, it kind of shows. I feel like Nancy's a bit of a boy because I remember she said something like, "Gretchen, you know, got she took her father, and you're not going to do that." I'm like, "Oh, Nancy, Nancy." Her line in about Playboy, her friends are like, you know, what you the least you could do is show it to us. Uh, she says, so I opened my bedroom door and went downstairs trying to remember where I had seen the latest issue. I didn't want to ask my mother, not that it was so wrong to show it to my friends. So that either speaks to a naivete or the fact that her 
in the past, it wasn't that big of a deal, you know, because this is 1970, right? So this is around the the Woodstock era. I mean, if it was so wrong, my father shouldn't get it at all, right? So it's kind of, she's kind of rationalizing it. Although lately, I think he's been hiding it because it's never in the magazine rack where it used to be. So, And it was in his night table drawer. So at some point, he had them in the magazine rack, but, but he's been putting them in the drawer of the nightstand. Um, she's okay. sneaking around and finding them. Yeah. So the anatomy book, you know, what would have been interesting is, um, although some people, uh, I don't know who would have had this at the suburbs, um, at that time. And I'm going to look this up for its publication date. This predates the joy of sex, because I think if, if Judy Bloom had written this maybe about five, because the joy of sex was published in 1972, it would have been very possible if she had published this, say, in, I don't know, 77, that that would have been the book that they grab instead of an anatomy book. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, because that was groundbreaking in itself. Gotcha. Okay. Well, now we'll move away from the sexy time and the pornography to religion. Okay. So, how might this novel be different if Margaret had been born and raised with a religion? And then should we just break up the, we have like three sub questions. Yeah, we can probably, because this is a big, I mean, this is a big part of the book, right? Yeah. I think I kind of hinted at it earlier. Maybe if she had been born and raised with a religion, it's just kind of, she's still doing a lot of the things she's doing. But in this case, she's questioning her religion or the practice of her religion or the denomination or whatever. So she goes to the synagogue, she goes to, I don't know, Roman Catholic service or, or a Protestant service or something like that. And so it's still the same self-discovery, but along the lines of questioning what her parents told her she was and trying to figure out what she or who she is. Yeah. I think, yeah, she still would have been confused. I mm-hmm. think with a lot of the stuff that was going on, but perhaps she might have been a bit more in the know because it's hard to just drop into a church service yeah. and that's it. You know, at, well, out of context, you would have had, not she, had any upbringing in it. For the for the Christian part, she would have had more context because um, being raised Lutheran and then going to Catholic ceremonies here and there or Catholic services here and there for, you know, various friends or, or relatives or masses and weddings and things, there's not a lot of difference Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I used to joke that Lutheranism is Catholicism light. It's half the sacrament and none of the guilt. I see. But but it is. There's a lot of similarity between the services and things. The first time I stepped into a synagogue, I was thir- I was 14 or 13. Uh, it was 13. It was my friend's bar mitzvah. And I'd never been to a Jewish service before. And it was – I had very – it was very Margaret for me. It was, I had no idea what the heck was going on, <laughs> but it was fascinating. It was like, okay, kind of doing my best to follow along. And, you know, I had always been taught to be respectful in a house of worship. So I just kind of kept quiet and just kind of went with the flow, you yeah. know, um, yeah. would do it years later when I was that same friend, I was in his wedding and I went to them to Shabbos with them on Friday night. And um, then uh, to Temple on Saturday morning. Um, and again, no idea what was going on, but just kind of followed along with the prayers and wore my, the yarmulke and the, and the shawl and everything. So it's, again, yeah, it's, you have very little context for it. You can kind of 
get clued into it. And I think Mark. How old were you? The first time I was 13 because my friend's about six months younger than I am. So it was his bar mitzvah. And the second time I was 20, I was, no, I was 30. I, I turned 30 that weekend because okay. okay. Amanda was, we were in Chicago for the wedding. and Amanda was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh. <laughs> and I, I was my 30th. Uh, he got married on June 24th. It was the day after my 30th birthday. Could have so, blown at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. Because uh, I can see where she would be potentially over one. Because, you know, throughout you don't really hear what her relationship. She knows about God. Mm-hmm. But she just uses God. She doesn't say anything about Jesus. So I don't know, like, what her actual, like, background is. So that's why I, I feel like it's relatable that she would drop in there and maybe be confused Mm -hmm. um it helps that it's english of course but you know if someone has a sermon and they're talking about these sorts of things is how how much is it really going to stick yeah so i think a lot of i shouldn't say that a portion of religion happens in the home so i think it would be really different because her parents would be talking to her and and discussing aspects of whatever religion was chosen for her. So she would not only have it at church, uh, she would have it in Sunday school. That's another factor. Mm. She's not going to Sunday school. And that's really where you get, I think, a lot of the foundational ideas of whatever denomination you're going to. And then, yeah, at home you're, you're having discussions potentially as well. So it would just be different in that journey as we know religion doesn't necessarily even though you know part it 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 should uh, in a good way uh change how a person acts the only thing that you know if she were like very much in line with with everything maybe her treatment of laura would be a bit different but you know she's 11 to 12 she's 11 to 12 so i think grace can obviously be given and you know students can be unkind and children can be unkind at certain ages stella Um, i've taught quote unquote i've taught quote unquote christian girls who are just as backstabby and i know you know let's let's be let's be honest here well you could always there's also a middle ground there too where her parents raise her in some sort of Let's say since it's New York City Catholic, right? Um, let's say they raise her Catholic, but it, it you only get it to the degree to which your parents are practicing, right? So you could be raised Catholic and kind of up until you, maybe you are kind of going through things and you get confirmed or maybe you kind of drop off after your first communion and your parents become the type of Christmas and Easter Catholics who – you know, and so it's not a big deal in the house. So there's there's some wiggle room there too. Um, the idea that like you know there's just you're just kind of a, your parents are yeah we don't really go to church. We were for a while. It's kind of passive, you know, which is a very real thing too. Okay. Next is what does Margaret ultimately decide about religion, and how does she come to this conclusion? I know that in the project she says that. When she gets older she's and has kids, she's going to choose it for them, which I found – I don't know how – I don't know how much she's going to stick to that because she's also 12 years old. So it sounds like a very 12-year-old thing to do. You know, I'm never going to do this because blah, blah, blah. And then, like, you actually end up doing it. I don't know. I think it's very personal for her. I don't know if she knows or she knows if she's ready to make a decision there. 
I think she's taken a step toward it, but it's kind of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is a loose thread, but I think that Bloom did that on purpose. Yeah, and, and potentially for so that anyone could step in and make their own decision. And maybe Bloom mm-hmm. also doesn't want to proselytize. Proselytize. Yeah, I can never pronounce that word. And you know, in any or or lead anyone to make any sort of decision. I I sort of disagree with her. Just that you know, you can't come late in life. I mean, I feel like I knew of God and had like a stronger moral compass and background, you know, from my parents. But really, it was when I was a junior in high school that I think like I really came towards Christianity, and then even more like fervently post-university when I could like really understand what was actually going on but I feel like she's very much guided by her heart Mm. rather than like intellectually so I think she's going to go where she feels like she can um, find God the strongest so I feel like she's a very spiritual being yeah and yeah perhaps it's not going to be Christianity perhaps it will be something else which she does mention I think Buddhism and Hinduism, I think, in her paper. She said, I didn't know anyone. I think she also might mention Muslims, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I I could see um, any of that happening. Yeah, but I don't know. I kind of like the the parents approach that like you know they she can choose yeah but sometimes too much freedom freedom is also stifling. Oh yeah. Um, you know, option it, paralysis, if you will. Yes, as uh, as I was actually describing this to my uh, students today about the AP prompt, you can pick whatever you want and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's like being set loose in a Toys R Us with 100 bucks and being like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to get. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. And, and funny, it's kind of funny that you would describe your junior year high school as you kind of moving closer. <laughs> Mine, I was a junior in high school. That's when I actually started moving in the completely opposite direction. <laughs> Oh my! I, I just I it was a junior into senior year where I started questioning a lot of things and um, without getting too much into it because this this show isn't about me but it's not uh, no it's not so it's just that's why I find the kind of rebellious aspect of it but here it's um, because the question I had was how is the way Margaret is raised reflective of the time it was written especially the influence of the counterculture and. Part of her parents' reason for raising her this way was the conflict that they had with their own parents. Mm-hmm. Sylvia is uh, who is her father's mother. She seems like a actually a very nice, caring grandmother, but she's really yeah. pushy, right? She's overbearing, and her father is, you know, Margaret's father is walking away from that, right? You know, just like I, I don't, I, I want to, I'm trying to get out from under her thumb, and then. And then her mom's parents are just uh, anti-Semitic bigots. So, um, you know, how dare you marry a Jew? And so when they're like, well, we're going to let our daughter choose what she wants to do because, like, we both feel on some level oppressed and betrayed by what has passed for religion uh, because it's been weaponized in our relationship with our parents and we don't want it weaponized in our relationship with our daughter. So, and I think that's a very new idea at the time because this is 1970. So this is again, the counterculture, the idea of, you know, I mean, free love and and the women's movement and all these things were starting to make their way into the suburbs as you get in further and further into the late sixties and especially into the, into the seventies. 
And so I think it's reflecting that time, the idea that, you know, it's not like they were running naked through, you know, the streets of far town, New Jersey, whatever it's called, Farbrook. And then having like, you know, raging parties, you know, LSD parties and things like that. But I think the questioning of the norms that came with the 1960s is very much alive here. And I think that's where you're seeing it in this novel. But, you yeah. know. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I was just listening to a podcast just about, you know, if one group of humans have experienced like oppression or being told that they shouldn't marry, then they are less likely, hopefully, to tell another group, often their own offspring, that, you know, they can't be with another Mm -hmm. person. And so I think that's very similar, uh, though in this case not romantic, but just like religion really caused an issue in our marriage because we wanted to be together and we didn't see religion as an issue, but other outside parties did. And so we don't want that to be something that also breaks us from you, Margaret, uh, causes some sort of kerfuffle. Yeah. Uh, But it's interesting how intense that whole dinner scene gets because they, yeah, they really, they really don't want Margaret to be choosing yet. And was I can't remember if there was another interaction earlier, like when she decided she wanted to go visit the temple and -hmm. her mother was a bit upset about that as well and said, like, you don't have to choose yet. So I feel like they might, they have to be careful not to go the opposite end, like where they don't, they want her to be a religious. Yeah. I think they're just nervous. Yeah. I think that when, when the kids, a little kid, right, they're five, six, seven, eight. Right. And this isn't, it's just not an issue. You know, you can choose when you're ready and they probably, you know, little kids have really good memories, but sometimes they have the attention span of a goldfish, you know, like, so it's like, okay, and then I'm going to go play. And, but, you know, they have that, you know, they're, you can dangle something shiny in front of them and, you know, whatever. So, so I don't think it worried them, but now that she is, she gets a bra deodorant Mm -hmm. these rites of passage are starting to happen and i think the two of them are just like and then she starts sniffing around religion or just thinking about religion she they're a little bit worried that they're not prepared for what her decision will be because i don't think they had really put a lot of thought into it or perhaps they were not expecting it this soon Mm -hmm. yeah (sighs) complicated yeah complicated could this novel transfer like any other issue like if margaret said um she decided she wanted to be mark or if margaret decided that she were queer do you think almost the same stuff would happen i think that uh, now i'm only talking about from little little experience i have as a teacher and a parent so you know i'm not queer myself so i can't speak to that but from what i can see from this and narratives and things i've seen it's not one for one but it certainly would fit in there and then you'd have to you know kind of move some pieces around and but the um but yeah i think that uh let's go with gender or sexuality right queerness uh, in some regard whether or not this the brother or margaret decides to come out as non-binary or or decides i'm, I'm transgender or that i am bisexual lesbian you know etc you could very well have her parents be very liberal about it and say we are going, you know, even from the beginning that 
perhaps they brought it, she brought it up at some point when she was little and they said, well, we'll support you whenever you are ready or, you know, something like that. And their parents, the grandparents having a fit over it, right? Like that dynamic of the oppressive parent, the oppressive grandparents, the grandparents who, and the conflict of the parents and Margaret having to navigate that, I think would be very similar. So, yeah, I think that I was, when you were discussing the religion thing, I actually was thinking about something like, like Margaret being gay. And, yeah. and I was like, it would fit. It would fit very similarly. You'd have to obviously change some of the specifics and rework some dialogue and stuff like that. You can't just kind of switch it out, but it would definitely be uh, very similar. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And her outburst is, is great. That she like, you're ridiculous. Yeah. Cause she's just, yeah. she's just like, they're doing that thing of talking her about her. Like she's not in the room. Yeah. And it drives kids crazy. And she's just like, I can't take this anymore because she feels being like she's being pulled in two or three different directions. She's like, it's me. <laughs> yeah. It's my decision. <laughs> yep. Okay. And then the final one on this is what is Margaret learning from the conflict she sees between her mother and her grandparents? I guess we've touched on it. Yeah, we have. Yeah. I think even though she maybe not fully realizes yet, I think she's coming to value the ways her parents have given her agency that their parents are refusing to give to them or her. Mm-hmm. Like even as nice as Sylvia is, she is not supportive of an independent Margaret in that regard. And, and her mother's parents certainly aren't right. But their yeah. parents gave her from a very early age, a sense of agency of, of who she is. And I think she's, I think she's starting to see the reason behind that. Hopefully she's seeing that the reason behind is they want the, her to be happier than they are. Oof, yeah. And that religion is a contentious subject. Mm-hmm. In company for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And relationships. I think now she, like, for, she understands, you know, the relationships between parents and in-laws. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that she's close with her grandmother. Yeah. But it is interesting to have this portrayal of her grandmother from Margaret's perspective and then probably what she might be presented as in like the mind of the mother or the father. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I also think it's that moment when like, I think up until a certain age or as much as you can as a parent, you try to shield your kids from family drama. Mm. And if there's a conflict between you and your parents, but you are on enough speaking terms, you play nice for the sake of the grandchild, um, yeah. at least when the grandchild's around, but here that that veil has lifted, um, or you know, or, or and and Margaret's kind of seeing seeing what it's really like for the first time. I think that's another piece of that uh, building strawman or whatever. Ooh, that's... Building strawman. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's another aspect of that. Yeah, absolutely. Since we were just talking about you know the perspective, what what do you think? this novel would be like i keep saying this novel because the whole title is but what do you think this novel would be like if it weren't told in first person or if it were told from a different character's perspective i don't think it would work for in third person i think the fact that margaret is narrating it is what makes it what it is it's certainly what made it groundbreaking i can't really like you know it's a it was a book written for young girls from their point of view, right? I don't see how, I could see how these things could play out and you might get a little bit of a longer novel with more looks into maybe an omniscient narrator would give us the thoughts of some of the other characters, but 
I and and I don't know. Um, it, maybe it would be interesting to see like what Laura thinks or what Nancy thinks or something like that. Kind of in that that scene from Inside in Inside Out where they kind of peek into the heads of some of the other girls in the schoolyard, and they're just as insecure as Riley. Um, I think we would get a little bit of that, which would be interesting. But I think the the strength of the book is Margaret's narration. So yeah. Yeah, it'd be completely different. Um, you know, it'd be interesting only if there were different chapters. Like, what would it be like in Nancy's mind? I mm. think Nancy's the only other character that could carry it. I don't know about the other two characters. Or Laura. What What is it like for Laura to experience the day in and day out? Uh, or maybe the mom or the dad. I guess preferentially the, the mother. So yeah. She seems to be more of a presence than the father so the only if you were to add those but then i think it would start to get a bit murky mm -hmm. but I, I think that the the specialness of this novel comes from that perspective and if it were third person that'd be interesting if god were speaking and god were you know speaking it's about the voice margaret. of god yeah or at the very end you find out that god was like watching um margaret grow and and everything but that would also change just because the it would take on Judy Bloom's voice mm -hmm. and it would be an adult looking in on a child. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of some of the things that go on might seem voyeuristic perhaps. Yeah. So because we have it from the mouth of a babe, it's not as some of these things aren't as 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 squeamish. And I think if it was in Bloom's voice it would be a, as as much as she could make it relate to girls, it wouldn't have lasted as long because it still would have come off as some sort of parental teacher lecture, you know, the same thing we've had the whole time, adults writing kids and stuff like that and just kind of not really giving them much of a personality. You know, Bloom wasn't 12 years old when she wrote this, but it's certainly she tapped into something. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, moving on then about her friends. Do Margaret's friends offer her support or do they hold her back? And then why do you think friends and friendship is such an important part of this story? Hmm. I think they do both, but I think this is so important because. Like the dynamics between the girls feel so very real to me. You know, the girl who wants to, who's lying to seem cool and mature because that's what she, you know, because she's insecure like that, you know, um, and so she's going to be the mean girl, like the burgeoning mean girl. The 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 club the the boy book was very real because honestly, boys that age or a little bit older when we were in junior high. Sometimes would we're hanging out, the conversation would turn to girls that were in the class and we'd have the same. I don't think we had a book where we ranked them, but we certainly had the same conversations about those girls. So it was just like yeah. that I related to. I was like, oh, I remember talking about somebody's figure in the eighth grade, you know, like stuff yeah. like that. So so that was yeah, the dynamic is really important uh, between all of them. And even the the whole thing with Laura, and we'll get to Laura uh, later, is is really important because it shows it shows that by having all those characters, because um, you know they want to, they genuinely do want to support each other. And I think that Nancy does genuinely think she's Margaret's friend and she wouldn't do anything to like put her down, but she's also doing that sort of insecure self-protection thing yeah. um so it's it's complicated and i think that complicated being complicated is, is what i liked about it absolutely yeah yeah i 
friendship is, in fact, yeah, pretty complicated. I don't know that I see any of her friends necessarily giving her support. We don't see her breaking down, but, you know, she seems to be the one that either is supporting the other person mm. or is getting ideas. Um, to, so she supported Nancy during her actual first period. She and, was it Lainey? Go and get, you know, the pads for yeah. the store. And she's actually the one who ends up buying it because Lainey wouldn't do it. So, yeah, where is the support for uh, for good old Margaret? Um, you know, well, she did go to the the movie with, yeah. with Lainey. That that was perhaps supportive, but it kind of seems like she is she's more of a caring and compassionate mm. person, and the other people are kind of in their own own world, and and she's got to look at that, which might be tied to her religion, of course. Yeah, well, there's also which um, it's kind of an irony, right? So it's ironic that all the girls in the in the little club that they have purport to be mature. Right. And Margaret actually shows more maturity in some places than they do. She's not always mature. She does a couple of really immature, stupid things, but the compassion and that empathy stuff, that is a little bit more mature than some of the other things. And, and it's ironic because she sees herself as the least mature one, right? She sees herself as kind of the runt, and um, so I thought that was uh, something. Yeah, they, they, but they, but they aren't. They think they're being supportive of one another by having their little club and their conversations and their breast exercises and and talking about their periods. And I think it's kind of a double edged sword because I think that 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 sort of stuff is the stuff that they end up using against one another sometimes. But at the same time just being there and being able to be open and honest and having that conversation is friends supporting one another. Yeah. I guess that's true. Uh, how do they hold her back? Hmm. Uh, I don't know if, do they hold her back? Well, I mean with yeah, the, them being a bit self-conscious or uh -huh. about something or lying. Um, other times Margaret might be holding Margaret back. Mm -hmm. So we do have to consider that. And then, yeah, friendship, I think, is just an important part of the story because, well, it would be completely different yeah. I guess, if this were Margaret by herself. But it helps form her to a certain extent. And then also, again, as she makes her way, I think she's also figuring out her, like, independence. That circle protects her from some of these terrible boys that seem to be in that particular class because if she were alone like Laura mm -hmm. she yeah she'd be pretty vulnerable so that she has friends I think things are easier for her but also they pressure her to do something I completely forgot about that test the history test which is probably I think that's bad testing practices even though I don't like the course on assessment I'm in to say <laughs> like, two chapters of this book we're going to have a test on it I don't think that's a good test to have but she's pressured because she's stuck studied really hard she wants to write her name and then she's pressured not to write her name oh yeah so remember that the that's, peer pressure. that's that weird middle grade cruel behavior that kids have sometimes toward adults yeah like they're trying to rebel or something or just kids can be real real brats and then you have to go along with in the peer pressure to go along with the bratty stupid things they do um, yeah, that, um, that's, that's tough. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, you know, again, <laughs> they're not all, they're not all the best as far as friends are concerned. No. But those kids, they make bad decisions sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, growing pains. Yeah. What would this be like if Margaret had an iPhone or if it were modern day? I think quite a bit of this would be the same. Like I said earlier, I, I think that childhood and, and teenagerdom has changed in the 50 years, obviously. But I think that sometimes in just in, in conversation or even in the media, we act as if it's like a completely different thing than it was. And yes, we have these technologies and things, but there's so much similarity between now and back then. Perhaps I would say they wouldn't be looking at Playboy. They would have been going online looking at stuff, which is dangerous in itself because the stuff that's online is a lot more graphic than what was ever in a Playboy magazine. Um, So that would be an interesting conversation. Um, they would have more conversations probably over time, you know, like some of the, some of the little story beats and logistics and things would change. And maybe some of the conversations would. And I think I understand now that like Judy Bloom in her interview about the movie was kind of like, it's timeless, but at the same time setting the movie in 1970 makes it work better because you don't have to fundamentally change. Cause there are things that would fundamentally change as a result of, of this. So, um, but I think some of the attitudes and some of the the way they interact with each other and some of the um, uh, some of the dynamic between the characters wouldn't change. Yeah, I think some of the troubling behavior might increase just mm-hmm. because we know that guys, you know, take pictures of girls um, and then like rate them. You know, there are those sorts of yeah. like, apps or websites or whatever. So that would be problematic. Just yeah, pictures. And text change, chains and things like that, and cyberbullying might come out. So it might be a darker story mm-hmm. if if there were a smartphone involved. And I know that this seems like I'm biased against social media and things like that, but I act, I, I think objectively that this would be a darker tale. Yeah, with with that kind of stuff, because social media generally adds to a lot of um, a lot of issues. Yeah. So I think there's there's one little thing in the Playboy chapter where they talk about like having that sort of body. And I know another of her novels is about body issues. And I think that that is one thing that would be amplified because of say Instagram and TikTok. And um, even though they're not supposed to be the age of that, there are a lot of people who are are just somehow get there, get a hold of it anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is just me talking off the top of my head. I don't know the statistics on this, but I want to say that body issues start in girls earlier than they did with my generation um, or earlier uh, that that in through elementary school, the earlier elementary school, you're getting people, young girls who are coming across with body body image issues because of what they're seeing. Right. Not that. Yeah, because there are beauty standards out there. Yeah. Yeah. Not that it didn't exist and it didn't exist for girls that young back in the 70s and the 80s. But I think that it's more widespread now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing that they have to look out for, that that people have to navigate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to start to wind things down here. But um, I do want to talk about Laura Danker and Mr. Benedict as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laura Danker, uh, why is she such an important character in this novel? She doesn't take up a lot of space in terms of... Like she doesn't have a lot of time in there, but she seems to be everywhere. 
And then do you feel like this is an unresolved plot line or does it go where it needs to go? And speaking of unresolved plot lines, do you well, – I forgot to ask the other one. I'll come back to that. Okay. But yeah, th- those uh, those two questions I guess for Laura. I'll start with the second one first. I think it needs to go where it needs to go because the fact that it's unresolved, that they never make up about it um, okay. and that she – Laura probably never will or at least for not for a long time. I think it shows – I think it's an important lesson for Margaret to learn about how hurtful things like that can be. Mm-hmm. So leaving it hanging like that is, A, realistic because it doesn't – things don't always you know, get wrapped up in bows. Um, and, yeah. B, I think it, 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 it the lesson hits harder because they don't make up. Okay. Um, I felt so – like the whole – even from the very beginning of the novel when Nancy and those girls are talking about Laura – I felt really bad for Laura yeah. because I knew that they were full of crap and what they were doing was spreading rumors about her because she had matured early mm-hmm. and because they were insecure about themselves and girl who matures that early and has a more mature looking body at like 12 usually. And again, I'm stereotyping. But I think they're more self-conscious about that. They feel weird and awkward. Yeah. Like it's 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 not a it's it can be very very tough, especially if you're getting especially with some of the way you have a question and we'll talk about that in a minute. But especially the way she get she'll get looked at, mm-hmm. or even catcalled possibly. Yeah. You know, there's that aspect of it too. But so, you know, perhaps she is more. I don't know how comfortable Laura is. But I would imagine she's very self, she's on some level very self conscious of the fact that she has, yes, that she's matured way faster than a lot of the girls in the class. Yeah. You have this question about um, Mr. Benedict. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to that then because I do want to talk about, unless you want to connect. Well, the thing with Laura, like, is he, because he notices her, it seems. Or at least we're told through Margaret that he notices mm. her. Yeah. Yeah. Like he gets nervous when Laura's at, out. There's always a tension brought to like, oh, Laura wore this sweater. Mr. Benedict's really going to have our time. Like all of this kind of stuff. So I don't know if it's like, is it the time that we're looking at now? Mm. It's, maybe that wasn't the intention there. Or is it just uh, – and, and I mean you are – you could speak, I think, as a male teacher – in a very tricky time because I'm a female teacher and the stuff that I see makes me very uncomfortable. Like I literally was walking behind a girl today and the pants were ripped up the entire back, the entire back that you could see like the gluteal, you could see Mm. like I could see a sliver of like pink of the underwear. I was like, why did they put holes in the back? But I mean like that kind of stuff or just like cleavage and mm-hmm. um the the song. So anyways, we're in a tricky time. But as a male teacher, it's a trickier situation. Yeah. Um so yeah, what do you what do you think about that section in this novel? Well, first of all, I'm so tired of seeing midriffs. Oh, um I know. so many very You know, I think it's half true maybe i wonder if margaret isn't the most reliable narrator because her view on laura has been skewed by what nancy has told her so she's looking for laura to be uh to act more um forward Mm -hmm. you know and and but like what 12 year old girl is going to try to entice her sixth grade 
teacher, right? Um, And I also think, you know, his his worry and stuff is probably also he's a first year young young teacher too. So I don't. I think it's also just nerves in general. I didn't get a predatory vibe from him. Yeah, I would if there was like conversations like if you know because like i remember uh, a teacher in my junior high school having a weird relationship with one of the girls in our english class and he might have known her through coaching or another um or a family friend or something but at the same time it always came off to me as odd like he knew her a little too much Mm. and no, I think nowadays we've been so inundated with your dateline, your true crime stories, your your stories in the news about stories like the, the Lolita of it all, right? Oh. Um, that our brains are more apt to, to jump to that in the same way that we equate some sort of, you know, that we are quick to jump to he's stalking her in some context with uh, with mm-hmm. pursuit of love stories. Um, I don't think that's going on here. I, I think it comes off as a little creepy in, in spots, and I think it's supposed to seem uncomfortable for him, but I don't think his intentions are that way. What did you think? Yeah, I don't – so I'm looking like page 32 on my copy. I don't know about you. What chapter is this? Chapter 5. They're talking about Mr. Benedict, who must mm-hmm. have been after the first day of school. But Nancy asked, anyway, <sighs> did you see the way he looked at Laura? Mm-hmm. And said, no, did he? Naturally, men can't help looking at her. But do you think she looks that way on purpose? Nancy says, oh, Margaret, as if she were a dope. Uh, and then later, Chapter 7, Nancy pointed out that he never, ever called on Laura Danker. And I hadn't noticed, is what Margaret said. So it's a lot of it is coming from Nancy. Nancy, yeah. You had that um, point in your summary of she realizes that Nancy, not Moose, was spreading the rumor. Like, you know, she, right. she kind of realized who the culprit was. Yeah. I think it comes down to jealousy, frankly. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Laura's big role, I think, is to be this image that the girls want to be but are not. Uh, she has developed early. Perhaps she has her period already she may have gotten it you know earlier and these are the things that the girls don't have the guys look at her potentially but they don't realize which i think is true of real life that you're looking at the these other people looking at these beauty standards but don't realize like on the flip side what is it that that person is going through how did they get there you know that all that kind of thing which we find out of course from laura because she's just more herself because she's just like almost this object she's not even human until she and margaret have that poor interaction in the library because she then she can speak for herself and she's like i know what all of you do i know what the guys do this is what my life is actually like i wish you know people would not be terrible to me basically yeah so uh, i appreciate her role in this story i think she serves as a more innocent version of the playboy centerfolds Mm -hmm. and you can see you know the cattiness of girls also at, at that young age i guess in my 
wanting things to wrap up nicely and have a happy ending. I did wish we could see, like, was there a resolution to that? Because Na- Margaret can't even apologize to God mm-hmm. about that. Um, she she feels like she's being punished for it. She couldn't go to – she walked in the booth but didn't know how it worked, so she ended up leaving. Yeah. And she does feel pretty bad. But, uh, I, you know, I'm sure that they'll interact later on, but they might <laughs> – Laura is always probably going to remember that, I think. But you're right that it is real life, that, you know, she had this terrible interaction. They're done with Belgium, so now Laura is done with her. But it's really sad. You know, we think about Margaret, and does she actually have true and long-lasting friends? But poor Laura probably is, like, the saddest character in this novel because I don't even know if she has any friends in that class. I was wondering that, too. She's just alone and being gawked at. yeah. And She's just being consumed yeah, by people. Yeah. yeah. That's why I feel so bad for her. Yeah. And I, you know, I do feel discomfort when I'm reading that. Obviously, it, I think it's a different era. I mean, not to say that predatory things didn't happen in the mm-hmm. 70s, but I feel like reading it at that time period, we might not have seen it as we do now. And I think also we're in their perspectives of teachers. And so it's true. It, yeah. it feels a bit different, but you do have to take it with a grain of salt um, with Nancy and perhaps, you know, Mr. Benedict, because, you know, I do, you know, men, lizard brains, and I'm also told repeatedly by people especially in Christian circles, as for reasons why, you know, when you ask questions of, like, why can men be without shirts but women can't be in, you know, a sports bra? The answer is because men are visual creatures. This is what I'm always told. Men are visual creatures and they can't handle themselves. So perhaps he's, like, being overly, overly cautious by not calling on her or doing all of that. I would imagine it's very possible that he is, you know, you do there. It's hard. It's hard to say this without sounding like I'm blaming teenage girls for wearing the clothes they wear. And you, you do make a concerted effort to shut your brain off in that regard when you're standing in front of 20 of them or more on a daily basis, you know, because that, you know, you just you and I think that's one of the things he's learning. It's like, OK, there's a there's there's a line and like you're learning where that line is and you're learning how to how to stay on that line, even though you never would cross that line. But yeah. you're scared yeah, yeah. of that line. So, you know, by the time you reach like the the experience that we have, you're very good at staying on that other side of that line. Sure. Um, but at, at that age of because he's got to be in his mid 20s, it's it's um, definitely it's definitely very much in his mind. Yeah, that's why I always have close relationships with female students, not male students. Mm-hmm. There, I was actually subbing at one point and it was just one male student and me. And it was really loud. Uh, in like the hall for whatever reason I was like trying to do work so I closed the door but I also like lifted the blinds so like yeah. you're you're just cautious about doing um, those sorts of things oh no I'm very sure. much I've I've had where I've had to do field trip type of things with um, a female student for you know like where I to competition things and I've had another uh, teacher come with me so that oh, yeah. um, usually go, a female right. teacher so that um, so that it was, you know, because that was and even my administrators understood there. I said, look, I have to drive this person to this poetry competition in Richmond. It is a teenage girl. I'm a male teacher. I would like this other teacher my department to come with me. They're like totally understand. So, you know, it's people are very cognizant of those things. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. 
Okay, and then I guess finally about Mr. Benedict. Mm-hmm. Because he is their teacher, these kiddos are in the sixth grade, and they're obviously learning a lot from him, potentially. And, uh, well, he does say that he's very well prepared for the next class. So what do you think he learned from them <laughs> this school year? How to navigate their immaturity. <laughs> All right, you know, again, uh, yeah. you you can you can take as many classes as you want, but you've got to get in that room, and you've got to not only that, you've got to be thrown to the wolves, and it's just it's trial by fire. <laughs> we yeah. we've both been there. So. I no one hundred percent. It's not been that bad for me, but certainly enough, and I love the fact that he turned and he graded all of their tests. And wrote their names on it, and he has like a uh, forgive me for swearing a <laughs> eating grin, you know, because he like won the battle. But we don't see yeah how often. But yeah, I think new teachers, man, when you're oh. green, you can feel that greenness. The kids know that you're green. The parents they know you're green. Smell. They're gonna lean into you, and they go after him. And you take it personally too, yeah. which that is like one of my. You know, if I were to recommend or even like mentor, which I've, I've mentored in the past, just like you cannot, you cannot take things personally no. or else you will not make it. And because that project, he's like disappointed and he shows that disappointment on his face because mm -hmm. Margaret picks up on it and it's like, you can't do that or else they're, they're going to get to you. So um, I think he's very happy to have survived that sixth grade class, but now he knows he knows what's up. 18 years in, I still take things personally sometimes, so it doesn't always oh, go away. No. But no, I but agree. No, with you're, you. yeah, you're right. It's hard sometimes. And yeah. um, even though, and we don't get a lot of parent teacher interaction in this, but I will say that when you are a new teacher, the parents are worse than the kids. The the kids know the oh, new, how new teachers are, they can smell it like, yeah. like dogs smell fear. But the parents are just, there are some parents who are fine, but there are parents who are just total jerks about it like yeah. like come in with that superior attitude of you're just a new teacher and i've i remember uh having a few of those conversations and being like you know what do you want me to do you know <laughs> yeah so. yeah it, it's it's often a um a hazing period mm -hmm. honestly yeah the first year I would say, yeah, the times when I take it personally are when students that I feel like I have a good relationship with all of a sudden are like terrors or do something that's just wildly out of character and like almost like in a person, it feels like a personal attack. Like what's going on here? Like we had a good relationship. What, you know, why would you, why are you disrespecting me? And yeah. Everything? So those are the ones that hit the worst. Anything else? So we've got Sylvia. Uh, is it right for Margaret to keep Nancy's secret or the move? Do you, do you have any desire to discuss any of those? Well, I think the Margaret keeping Nancy's secret goes back to what I was saying about her being a little more mature Yeah. by the end. I think we talked about Sylvia. I mean, Sylvia, she has a really nice relationship with Sylvia, and I think yeah. she does not allow her to get – Sylvia wants to be more of an influence than she actually is. Um. I think I think Margaret's very good at I think Margaret loves her grandmother, but I think she's also good at kind of placating her going yeah. along with it when she's with her in the city and stuff like that. But, you know, when push comes to the shove. She's she realizes that she can still be her own person. And I think that independence um, starts to shine through as you get further and further along in the book. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think she allows her freedom mm -hmm. to be who she is. And I think she's a great confidant, too. Yeah. For her, uh, which is great. And it's not like she has Margaret doesn't have a poor relationship with her mother because clearly Margaret knew all about periods and things. Yeah. Which is good because I do get concerned, like, do parents talk to their children about sex if they're not doing sex ed? So I'm hopeful that she will, you know, there will be discussions about that in that household as well. But no, I do. I like Sylvia. I, yeah. I, I guess not having in-laws, I can't really speak to it, but perhaps it might be, like you said, kind of suffocating. But Lincoln Center tickets? My I know. gosh. She, well, her, I think it was implied that Sylvia has money, like lives in Central, near Central Park West or, or East or somewhere yes, like near, yeah. near the park. The culture. That's yeah. awesome, though. To, yeah. It was such a blessing to be able to, to do that in physical culture, even if you're not like fully understanding maybe yeah. what you're watching, if it's like Madden Butterfly or something. Yeah. But I do. I, I like Sylvia. And I don't think she's like whispering her, in her ear or anything. No. She's overjoyed when she asked to go to Temple, but we, we don't see anything about it up to then. It's not like she's going, when are you going to come to Temple? When are you going to come? That doesn't happen at all. Yeah. So um, I feel like Sylvia does respect boundaries, uh, but she also knows because of the nightly phone calls or mm -hmm. whatever, um, when, when it might be too much. For she, she can be overbearing. Uh, but yeah. she does. She does have some sort of semblance of respect for boundaries. Yes. And then Nancy, just the Nancy thing, really quickly. I would mm -hmm. say it'd be pretty petty if she didn't keep the secret. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, sorry. I mean, again, twelve years old. But I'm sorry that they didn't have a follow up conversation mm -hmm. about you know, like you broke trust because I think it really hurt Margaret that she was lied to. Yeah, I just maybe it just didn't fit in there or something, yeah. you know. Cause I think it, we're trying to ascribe some really adult personality to Margaret. Yes, we have to be cautious. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. As far as New York City or New Jersey, it could go either way. I think growing up in the city, there's the same damage as growing up in the suburbs. Yeah. Coming of age, I mean, it. it I don't think it really. I don't think it really is one over the other. My only thing is with that suburb, everyone knows everyone's business. Mm -hmm. Whereas in New York City, I think you are – there are so many people that your business wouldn't be known as much. The, the, the irony of a, of a city of 7 million people that you can be completely anonymous, right? Yeah. The loneliness in the crowd. And I think you're right. Um, but at the same time, some of the social circles and things that people are in, people know people and talk about people right. and stuff like that. People so. know. Yeah. Is that an, isn't that a song? It's people are people you're thinking of by Depeche Mode. Oh, people okay. are people. So why should it be? <laughs> uh. Oh, okay. Well then, Tom. One final question, or really two, but the other one comes later. Mm. Is this required reading? I would. I you know I think so. Um, and there's a couple of reasons. One, much like with the Catcher in the Rye, it's kind of a foundational text. So. I think a lot of a lot of books have come along in the YA aimed toward a female audience are, are like that are coming from this as an archetype. I don't know what they are, but like I just feel like this is an archetypal book. And I think to to, to be of reading about these things or, or seeing female protagonists, you could kind of go go all the way back here. And here's the first like here's the origin point of that. And I think that makes it required. I also think like. Just the frankness of the discussion about menstruation mm -hmm. and some of the discussions you can have about um, of being female um, and the pressures that you're going to face as a young woman make this 
it, it endures and I think it makes it required reading because I think it's just one of those things where like the, maybe this is one of the first places you see this in fiction and yeah. um, if you're reading it at a very young age. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if our goal here on this show is to normalize and destigmatize periods, then this is the way to go. And I would say, I honestly, I don't understand the, I mean, I don't understand a lot of challenging or censoring, but this one I like really don't because you are censoring or challenging human bodily functions. So it's very bizarre. It's, it's a strange, strange thing. I, I can't explain it because I don't know the weird leaps in logic or lack thereof that goes through the people's heads. It's like, do you think if a girl knows that her period is what a period is, she's going to go want to have sex or I don't know. It's, it's a very, very strange thing where it's like girls' bodies are icky. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, let's just say it's misogynistic and leave it at that for now. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And it's a buildings Roman. Yes, yes. So, uh, we don't have any feedback this episode, but I did mention this to Stella before we went on, yes. so we're going to have a very brief discussion because after our last episode, we talked about Romeo and Juliet, and this movie kept coming up and coming up, and I finally yes. sat down the other night and over a couple of nights and watched Rosaline. Finally! Yeah. So, I really enjoyed it. It was very Yay. cute. Okay. And I thought it was I thought it was clever. I thought it did a really good job as 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 uh, as uh, uh, as they say over in, in England, taking of taking the piss out of the story. <laughs> um, yes. And there are some really brilliantly funny scenes. The scene you were describing in the episode where she's telling Juliet about her plan to get her away, her and Romeo away. And Juliet describes the whole thing with the poison and says she's that's the stupid that's, that's the stupidest effing thing I've ever heard. And then Juliet starts to get sleep. She's like, you already drank the potion, did you? I was, I had to stifle a laugh because it yeah. was late and I was watching it. Um, <laughs> the chemistry between Rosaline and her love interest, whose name escapes me because it's late, uh, was really good and stuff. And uh, I just, yeah, I thought the, the, meta, the meta jokes were great. Um, yeah, it's just overall... It was it was a fun movie, and in fact, actually, I may look toward building something around it in my freshman English class next yeah. year because it would be really yeah. interesting. Instead of just showing the movie version of Romeo and Juliet, which I show scenes of anyway, like okay, let's take a look at like how an adaptation can be different, and going a little bit more like in the critical thinking way, right? You can kind of go in that direction with it. So yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Tom, this is the second time that I've influenced your classroom structure. Mm. Do you remember the first time? No. The Heroides. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause you brought in Penelope. Mm-hmm. What, and so I still the one use thing, that by the way. I'm so glad to hear it. What Penelope deserves a voice. What did you think about the near ending with with Juliet and Romeo sailing away? But but they don't have anything it's, it's to the, talk about. I they're sailing away, and I saw the looks in their faces, and I was like, "It's the last scene of the Graduate." Yeah, and I they're was like, like "Now what?" Brilliant. Yeah, and then and then in the mid credits sequence where they're like, "Do you like sports? Yeah, <laughs> you like food." <laughs> 
Because that was something that we were discussing, but I don't want to spoil it of like, do yeah. they actually have anything in common? <laughs> what, what's this marriage actually going to be like? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody on TikTok, and I have to find this thing, did this whole post about the ages of Romeo and Juliet and how Shakespeare did it on purpose because he was showing how absurd it was to marry people at that age. Oh, okay. And I was like, they had a really good point to make and everything. So I got to dig that up and find it and yeah. and uh, see if I can share it somehow. So are you on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. Okay, yeah. If I can find it and share it or show it to you, I, I will at some point and maybe next we meet because I thought it was a really, really cool thing. And if I could show it to my students, I would. So I'll have to figure that out. Put a pin in that. Okay. But yeah, but no, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was very, very worth watching. It's on Hulu and it's a nice tight hour and a half too, by the way. Yeah. It was just over an hour and a half. It was, um, it was funny. Um, the fact that Brad, Bradley Whitford as Rosalind's oh, yeah. father is great. Um, Christopher McDonald is just Lord Capulet. So you have the two Capulets played by villains from Adam Sandler movies, which I thought was funny. So, but I, I love Bradley Whitford anyway. I've loved him since the West Wing, and uh, it was great to see him in that because he does a really good straight man to the sort of you know and and Rosaline and oh Minnie Driver as the nurse. Oh yeah, the line at the end. I'm she keeps screaming at her registered nurse. He's like, I just thought that was your name. She says, No, my name is Janet. Ah uh, yeah, I forgot how <laughs> funny that was because no one believes that she has any actual medical background. Yeah yeah, so that was just again that was it was. It was really clever in a way that was uh, really, really fun. Well, I'm glad to hear that I made a good recommendation. Okay. Well, Tom, now we get to the point where you tell us what we're going to be reading next. Now we had Sad, Sad, Uplifting. So where are we going now? Punk Rock. Really? Is it the Acid Kool-Aid Test? No, it's, it's a fairly recent novel, actually, and it's been on my reading list for a while. So I decided okay. to take it off the yeah. shelf and give it a try. It's from uh, 2010, was okay. the original publication date. It is called A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Goon Squad number one. Are we going to have to do the whole series? I have no idea this was a series. <laughs> Well, it's just saying. we're just doing that. We're just doing that. Okay, it's from the Goon Squad. I've never heard of it. So, will what time period are we talking? It was written in 2010. Okay. So, um, but do you think it's contemporary to that? I think it is, although it seems to go into their the past of the characters. So it might okay. bounce around in the last maybe 20 or 30 years. Is Robert going to like this? No, no. Let's we'll see. <laughs> Oh, I would imagine okay. that Rob, Robert would like a good rock and roll story. So. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Tom. All right. Don't you usually oh, wrap yes. us up? <laughs> like, it is so, I don't I'm like, normally I'm do it if I have book, to do it. I can try, but you've done it every episode. No, that, is, so. that is it. We will. Okay. As, as I, flub, I, flub, I flubbed the intro before. Now I'm flubbing the outro. Yay, just the professionalism you expect from me on these podcasts. Absolutely, on 78 so, episodes. I am so sorry. By uh, 80, we'll have it figured out. Yeah, eventually, right? Um, so anyway, we, we literally have the phrase, introduce yourself and your co-host written in all caps because there was one episode, I think it was like the first or second one, where one of us forgot to introduce the other. Like, um, so anyway, uh, yes, so uh, a visit from the Goon Squad next episode. If you have any questions or comments or anything you want about uh, Margaret or any of the things in this novel, please uh, drop us a line on email, Facebook, 
uh, or the comments on the blog or on Twitter. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if you're a female in the county that Tom and I are in, I don't suggest using any of the sanitary pro products in there. I don't know about you, Tom. Well, you probably wouldn't know. But the tampons at the school I work at have a cardboard applicator. Oh, really? Cardboard. I just know there's a machine in the single occupancy bathroom. Yeah. Well, no. next time you go in there, you let me know what it's like. I will. I will let you know what it's like. <laughs> Thank you okay. very much. You're welcome. Hashtag normalize and destigmatize periods. Hashtag ditto. Good night. <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Our next guest is a beloved author whose books have sold more than 90 million copies, touched generations of readers. Now, Judy Bloom's classic coming-of-age book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, has been made into a movie for the first time. Let's take a look at a clip. Okay, goodbye, goodbye. Bye. 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 See ya. Have fun. Right there, right there. Good. There you go. See ya. Independence is good, right? Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm a little nervous, actually, about being alone, so can you just not let anything really horrible happen? Oh, God, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> so classic, Judy Bloom. welcome. So great to have you here. Thank you. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, written more than 50 years ago. You were always reluctant to make it into a movie. What made you say yes? Well, I, you know, I got a wonderful letter. There are a lot of wonderful letters, but this one came from Kelly uh, Freeman Craig. And at the end, she said to me, oh, like, by the way, I, um, I wrote and directed the movie Edge of Seventeen. And I'm oh, like, yes. wait. Great movie. What? Mm. That's a great movie. I saw that movie. This is the first time I've ever had, you know, someone ask me, can we make the movie with that kind of credential? And to top it off, she said, my mentor is um, James L. Brooks, oh, wow. and he is with me the whole time, and he would be with me. And can we come to meet you in Key West? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> meet me in Key West. But I think by the end of that lunch, we all knew we were going to do it. And your verdict on the movie? I love it. Oh, I wouldn't yeah. be here, I wouldn't be putting myself through all this, mm. although you're great fun, <laughs> if I didn't love this movie. I, I may be you know, one of the only authors who says this movie is better than the, wow. than the book. Wow. And I, I mean it, and wow. I mean in certain ways, because you get to meet all the adult characters. It's great to hear. That, your book was so vivid. I remember it still today, reading it. It was very pivotal um, in, in so many of our lives. And you decided to not only, you know, you're Judy Bloom, but you produced, Judy Bloom producer on the movie. Um, and I love that you were very particular in getting one scene right. 
We must. We must. <laughs> we must yeah. increase uh, you our know, bust. I, I know better. I know better I than to you say. went all the way on that one. I know. Who here has, if you've read the book, if you you're know. a young girl and you've read the book, it sticks with you. Or and guy. I get that you wanted to get it right. Well, because I was sitting next to one of the real producers, Julianne Sell, and I was there on the set and watching it on the monitor. And suddenly the girls started to do this. I must, I must, I must increase my bus. And I'm like, wait, stop, Julie, you're doing it the wrong way. That's the way Kelly did it when she was growing up. You know, she, nobody told her the right way. Right. So everything stopped and I gave them a little demonstration. <laughs> I must, I must, I must. And then of course I always say to kids, when I demonstrate, and by the way, it doesn't work. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't matter. And by the time you're my age, it's even good. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, this book has remained popular um, through generations. Why do you think there's such a connection? You know, I can't explain my connection to kids. It's in part, you know, memory. Some people just have a great memory for their own childhoods, and I had that and when I started to write it never occurred to me to write anything except about kids, kids on the cusp, mm. kids on the edge and I think that's, that, that's part of the connection. It is so hard to believe that your books are still being banned in so many places. Oh, banned books. Yeah. You know, I went through the 80s and we thought the 80s that that might be as bad as it would get. We're America, yeah. right? We're supposed to have um, intellectual freedom. And now it's back and it's worse. Mm. It's worse because it's coming from the government mm. and it's coming from elected legislators. And I happen to live in Key West, which we deny is in that state. <laughs> but <laughs> the truth is, you know, it is in Florida. Yeah, we the have backlash the has been just incredible. And it, it is terrible. We have to fight it. But we have to speak out, yell. Mm. But there is, at the same time, a renaissance, a Judy Bloom renaissance upon us. Um, your movies are being, your books are being made to movies and to TV shows. Uh, there's even a documentary um, about you, finally. Um, what made you decide to open up your life at this time? Well, there aren't that many shows coming. So there should be. I'll put it out there. We'll see how it goes. The documentary, uh, though, is happening, Judy. The documentary is out there right now. Um, you know, it's hard for me to talk about it because that's me yeah. up on the screen. It's like, what? Who is she really? Um, but I think they did a very caring job. Uh, and the two things that I like best about it are that they deal with the letters from the kids all over so many years, thousands and thousands. And they show you some of the kids who wrote to me, who were kids, who are now grown ups. Well, and, and so good of you, because yeah. one of the other things it shows is you didn't only reach them with your books, you actually reached out to them personally and changed their lives in so many ways. Not all of them, you know. Not possible to do all of them, no. But some of them, mm -hmm. you know, yes. And speaking of the letters, you received thousands of letters a month. Are, I did. Are, are, from your young readers, are they still writing you? And if so, what are they writing about? The thing is this, it's very different when you pick up a pencil and you choose your writing paper mm -hmm. and then you put a stamp on it. 
you know, and you go out and put it in the mailbox. That's a very different kind of letting go of what's inside you than it is when you sit down at a computer and send an email. So most of the letters that I get now come through emails. And it's not that I don't appreciate them, I do, but it's not usually the same um, coming from deep inside the gut, yeah. the Agreed. heart. That is a difference. Agree. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.